topic for tonight is the life of Abraham Joshua Heschel. Abraham Joshua Heschel is one of the heroes of 20th century Judaism, in my opinion. And he represents the old world of Hasidism transplanted in a new form in America. Someone who had a real zeal and love for Judaism and for belief in God and who wanted to change the apathy of American Jewry and for that matter the wider American public towards matters of belief and morality. Just uh, to give you a few names of who he's uh, descended from, Heschel, who was born in Warsaw in 1907, was the son, grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson, nephew, cousin, brother-in-law, you name it, of a, of a Hasidic Rebbe. So dozens of Hasidic Rebbes were his nuclear and broader family. His father, was Moshe Mordechai, was the Pelzovizna Rebbe. His older brother-in-law and cousin was Abraham Joshua Heschel, the Kapitznitzer Rebbe. His uncle Yitzchak Meir was the Kapitznitzer Rebbe. His nephew Moshe Mordechai was the Kapitznitzer Rebbe. His great-great-great-grandfather was the Abderav, the Ohev Yisrael, who was his great uh, uh, ancestor. His great-great-grandfather on the other side was Israel Friedman, the Regina Rebbe. His great-grandfather, his fifth layer of great-grandfather was the Magad of Mezrich. His grandfather on his mother's side was Yaakov Perlow, the Novominsker Rebbe. His cousin was the Novominsker Rebbe. His younger cousin was the Novominsker Rebbe. So, uh, uh, the current head of the Aguda was his cousin's son. So, one layer removed. Right, he, so uh, by association, he was closest with the Kapitschnitzer for most of his life. In his youth, he was closest with the Novominsker, who was his uncle. Um, and for a limited time, early in his, in his youth, he was associated with the Gera Hasidim, who are closely related to the Novominsker. Okay. In the Gera Shtibl, yeah. So, he's born in Poland in 1907. His father is a small-time Rebbe with a little constituency in, in the neighborhood. His other relatives are more prominent Hasidic rabbis. He first learned to the private tutor, and then in a Gerish Tibel, and then later in the Masifti Yeshiva. Um, he is being groomed to replace his father eventually as the neighborhood rabbi, as a Hasidic rabbi. That's his role in life. He has older sisters, uh, and a younger brother Jacob, but uh, his role is to be a, a Hasidic rabbi. We'll get to that, yes. He, his father dies when he is nine years old on January 11th, 1917. And that changes his life for the worse. Um, during World War I, life for the Jews of Poland was not easy. There was a lot of uh, starvation. There was a real economic crisis. Many people were trying to leave and get out and go wherever they could. It was a very hard time, and the Hasidic rabbis of Poland who stayed had to b- shoulder the burden of their constituents to try to give them comfort, and sometimes even a, a place to sleep and a morsel of food, because people were desperate. And his father died young. There was a, a history of heart disease in the family, which would ultimately take his, his life, Abraham Joshua Heschel, at the age of 65, uh, so he didn't live that long. Uh, but his father died in his 40s, his uncle died in his 50s. These rebbies were taking on the burden of the public, and sometimes it took the kishkas out of them, and they couldn't live very long lives. But ha- having uh, lost his father at an early age, his education was taken over by his uncle, the Novominsker, who changed the direction of his education. Whereas in his earliest years, Abraham Joshua Heschel was learning in the joyful spirit of the Baal Shem Tov and the Magad of Mezrich, and the earliest strata of Hasidut, the, the happy-go-lucky strain of Hasidut, in his teenage years, he had the anxiety of the Kotzka Rebbe, and the uh, 
strain of Chasidut which always is questioning your own self-worth. Wondering, Afar Anochi. I'm only... Huh? It's, well, there's a Musser angle to, a, uh, to one side of Hasidism. And there's the other, more joyful, other, uh, first side of Hasidism. So, it's a battle of the ego, and a search for authentic piety. That's when he was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. In 1920, he has his bar mitzvah. And in 1923, at the age of 16, he's given smicha by Rabbi Nachum Zemba. So, one of the leading rabbinic figures in, in pre-war Poland gives smicha to a teenage Heschel. His earliest publications were Torah publications in the uh, monthly and quarterly journals put out by the yeshivas, the Hasidic yeshivas of Warsaw. On basic chidushim uh, in Gemara. No, in Hebrew. In Hebrew. We'll see he becomes a Yiddish writer very soon. That's his first step away from the tradition. His mother had the foresight to reject a shidduch with the cut with Heschel's cousin, uh, which was proposed when they were both 16. And because the shidduch was rejected, each one went their own way, and the girl ended up marrying a shegetz and moving to Paris. Oh my. Cousin Gittel, yeah. So, Heschel's mother realized that he was undergoing some sort of crisis. Not a crisis of faith, but a crisis of focus. And he needed some sort of a spiritual diagnosis. So she sent her son to Dr. Fischl Schneerson, who was a cousin of the Rebbe. And Dr. Fischl Schneerson was like a modern Orthodox Lubavitch. He had a degree in psychology from the University of Kiev, and was also still close to the, to the Chabad Hasidim. And Fischl Schneerson advocated that uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel expand his horizons geographically and intellectually. So that's what he would end up doing. His first step across the threshold was as a Yiddish poet, writing secular Yiddish poetry, sometimes of an erotic nature, when he was 16, 17, 18 years old. This is in the early to mid-1920s. And he meets secular Jewish intellectuals in Warsaw who run Yiddish language publications. In 1925, he makes his decision to move out of Warsaw and to go to Vilna. You might think of Vilna as a place of great Torah scholarship. After all, the Vilna Gon, the many great uh, Gedolim who lived in Vilna, the great Rabbonim who were the chief rabbis of Vilna in the, in the 19th century and early 20th century. But Vilna was also the center of secular Yiddishism. It's uh, the center for Yivo. All right? And if you want to go to, to, to Vilna to study Yiddishkeit as opposed to Frumkeit, well, that's where you do it. You can go to a school which will give you the Western canon of knowledge in the Yiddish language. And so Heschel, who wants to go to university, but how can you go to university without a gymnasia degree, goes to the Real Gymnasia, which is run by the Jewish Central Education Organization of Vilna. It's a basically a, a, a fancy high school for kids who are looking to get away from uh, traditional background and eventually move on to uh, university. Vilna is part of Poland. Vilna is not in Lithuania. Kovno, Kaunas, is the capital of Lithuania. Uh, by dint of uh, accident of history, in 1923, the Polish rep- uh, state swallowed up Vilna and wouldn't give it back, and didn't until, well, until the Soviet Union took everything in 39, um, and then kept it until 1991. So, he got scholarships, and he had a little bit of money in his pocket that was went, went for room and board. He spends 1925 to 1927 in Vilna, and it's a time of poet, p- piety and poetry. He's, ri- he's still writing Yiddish poetry, he's studying the high school curriculum, and he's still behaving like a Rebbe. Even though he's in an, a secular environment, he's, after all, at 18, 19, almost 20 years old, an ordained rabbi, a, ch- a, 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 a Hasidic Rebbe, an ordained rabbi, in a community of people where that doesn't really matter much, but nonetheless he has the bearing of a Rebbe, a dignified bearing. Not an arrogant one, but a dignified one. He's not in any kolo or anything like that. No, 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 no. He's getting his secular education at this point. 
1927, he graduates from the uh, gymnasium in Vilna, and it's time for him to go on to university. But lest you think that Abraham Joshua Heschel was like many of the other maskilim who abandoned their uh, early childhood, their roots, and had a one-way ticket out of traditional Judaism. No. Heschel's ticket to Vilna from Warsaw was a round-trip ticket, metaphorically and literally. He went back to Warsaw every few months to visit with his family, with his uncles, with his, with his cousins, so that he was never far removed from the Kapishna Hasidim, the Novominsker Hasidim. Uh, he would uh, immerse himself on his vacation breaks in the Hasidic culture of his family. He didn't ostracize him because he was going for a secular No, they did not. They did not. He, he maintained a good relationship with almost his whole family throughout his life. Almost his whole family. There were those who were uh, standoffish, but even later on when he's a, as a prominent professor in America, he still has good relations with the family in Borough Park. He's a very frugal guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, in 1927, he goes to Berlin. He wants to study in the University of Berlin in the philosophy departments, but he still can't get accepted because the gymnasium degree from Poland was, was not a, a reputable institution in the eyes of, of a German university. So he had to still take qualifying exams, which he studied for in the late 1927, early 1928, at which point he was able to enter the university as officially matriculated student. He also continues his Judaic studies. But where is he going to learn? When he's in Berlin, what are his options? What are the options in Berlin in the 1920s? So there are two schools, and they're right next door to each other. There's the Hochschule for the Wissenschaft des Judentum, the liberal seminary, and there's the Berlin Rabbinical School of the Orthodox, the Hildesheimer Yeshiva. He has one option, he has the other option. Which one is the more logical fit for him? So you would think that Hildesheimer, an Orthodox institution, and that's in fact what the Lubavitcher Rebbe sort of did in his time in Berlin. Uh, but no, he chose the Hochschule. Why? He wanted the academic study of Judaism without the um, the restraints imposed by Orthodoxy by this by the Hildesheimer Seminary. He wants to study from the great scholars of Judaism at the Hochschule. Who was there at the time? Julius uh, Gutman, uh, Ismar Elwogen, Leo Beck, uh, Hanoch Albeck. Big, big scholars are at the Hochschule. Of course, when he gets there, he finds that he knows more Torah than every other student there, because he was a, 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 a Eloy, a prodigy in a Hasidic environment in Warsaw, and so he knows more Talmud in his fingertips than the German boys know in a whole lifetime. But that's okay, because he's not there to compete with the other students. He's there to learn from great scholars. And so he advances rapidly through the system, eventually graduating in 1932 with a liberal rabbinical degree to complement the one he received from Rabbi Zemba. Now, while he's in university, he's studying philosophy, also art history, and Semitic philology. Those were his minors. But he's really interested in philosophy, and in particular, uh, philosophy of religion which ultimately will lead to his dissertation, his doctoral dissertation on the study of the Hebrew prophets. While he was in Berlin, he had a funny run-in with the Lubavitcher Rebbe-to-be. Not the, the then-present Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was the Friedrich Rebbe the sixth, but rather Menachem Mendel, who would become the seventh Rebbe, who was at that time just a student and a 28-year-old uh, young man. It was an incident involving a certain Gioris, who was converted under the auspices of Rabbi Sunderling, who was a reform rabbi, a liberal rabbi. And this Gioris uh, was actually quite religious, was a traditional observer, which he had back then in the liberal environment. And the husband was touting the, uh, the religious bona fides of his wife, his convert wife. And Menachem Mendel Schneerson said, she's not a, a real Jew, I would never allow anyone in my family to marry from her. To which he so Heschel pulled him aside and said, don't you ever talk that way to a convert again. So he criticized the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he wouldn't hold back anything from anyone. I don't know, uh, maybe, maybe. That's, the, that's, the, that's the, legend. the legend, but I wanted to leave that part out. So, he had a, 
a desire for, for an expanded curriculum that I can't tell you exactly why it uh, emerged inside of him, but suffice it to say, many people in similar circumstances felt as though there was some yearning for study that could not be satisfied in the old world environment. He's far from the only one. Many people were in that predicament, including some of the, the, the people who would be his colleagues at the, at the various seminaries later in life. Okay, so... Um, in 1931, he finishes his coursework. In 1932, in December, he, f- he submits a draft of his dissertation on the Hebrew prophets. Uh, the three university professors who have to review it and approve it all do so, some with higher marks than others. Uh, two of them gave him uh, honors, and one just gave sort of satisfactory. And he's now looking forward to taking his oral examinations which were to be scheduled for February 23rd, 1933. Of course, the problem is he's now 26 years old. Not married. married. Problem is that on January 30th, 1933, the Nazis take over. So this is a problem because the Nazification of German academia will happen fairly quickly, and universities will have uh, discriminatory policies towards Jews. Heschel's advantage was that he wasn't a German citizen. He was a Polish national, and therefore some of the persecution did not go his way. Uh, It it was to his own benefit to not be a German. Well, the environment in Germany is not very good. The Reichstag fire is four days after his oral exams, and the possibility of getting his degree seems slim because... The rules at the time were you had to submit 200 bound copies of your dissertation put put out by a publisher in order for the university to confer the degree, to get the diploma. And the publishing of Jewish books by non-Jewish publishers is now not a possibility in Germany. He had to find a Jewish publisher, but even the Jewish publishers were of limited financial means. And this was not going to be a book that was necessarily a big bestseller, a, a dissertation on the Hebrew prophets. So he's desperately searching in 1933, 34, 35 for some way to put out his book. He is able to arrange a deal between Eric Weiss, er, Eric uh, Ries Verlag, a Jewish publisher in Germany, and the Polish Academy of Arts and Sciences out of Warsaw, to uh, actually out of Krakow, to um, to produce his volumes, the, the requisite volumes. But he keeps uh, having to apply for extensions, six-month extensions from the university, because he can't get it done all that quickly. And as universities are wont to do, they'll cut you off. If you you fail to meet a deadline, your your degree doesn't get conferred. All your effort is in vain. He was lucky. Finally, after a lot of effort and trying, on December 11th, 1935, he gets his doctoral degree, even without all the copies of his book yet to be printed and, and distributed to libraries around Europe. That would happen over the course of 1936. Okay, so he's now Dr. Heschel. He also wrote it in German. Well, of course, it was, it was, it was written in German because it was a German uh, dissertation. It would be published in English in 1961. Uh, 25 years later, well after he had already written many other books in English. It was, uh, it was something he wanted to get around to, but there was a quarter century delay to it. Okay. Um, what's, what is he going to do now? He needs a job. He's a single guy, 28 years old, living in Germany, Nazi Germany. He's a Polish national, doesn't really want to go back to Poland. Um, would like to get out of Europe, if possible, or to at least get a job in Western Europe. But there aren't jobs to be had, and there are no visas to be had. So he has to make do in Germany. He does some writing. He writes a biography of the Rambam on the occasion of the Rambam's 800th uh, anniversary of his birth, which was widely distributed in Germany. He also does some teaching at the Hochschule, where he's in a, basically a teacher's assistant or a, you know, a low-level professor. And then he gets involved with Martin Buber and the Jewish Renaissance. This requires a little bit of background. The Jews of Germany, interwar Germany, Weimar Germany, are for the most part very assimilated and and acculturated and ignorant of their religious heritage. Okay, yes, there are the Orthodox, and to be honest, even the Orthodox were were not all that learned in Judaism. But certainly those who were beyond the Orthodox world, your average German Jew, did not know much about their past and now was suffering terribly 
legal discrimination on account of their religious identity. So there was a sense that if I'm going to suffer from my identity, I might, uh, well, might as well at least know what it is. I might as well reacquaint myself with a forgotten heritage. Now, who were the two figures who were most famously connected to this enterprise? Buber and Rosenzweig, with their translation of the Bible and the founding of the Lair House in Frankfurt. So Rosenzweig is now dead. He died at a, at a young age in 1929. Buber is heavily involved in adult education, trying to bring some semblance of Judaism, a very irreligious Judaism, uh, that, uh, to, uh, the, to the Jews of Germany. And he hires Heschel as his uh, sidekick. And eventually Heschel will take over the Lairhouse in Frankfurt when Buber moves to Palestine to become professor of philosophy at Hebrew University. So that's uh, Heschel's job now, uh, if you want to call it a job. I mean, he does get paid working for the Lairhouse, but his job is to bring Judaism, a sense of religious past, to an assimilated community. And he write, and he does it primarily as a writer and less so as a lecturer. So he writes essays on personalities in Jewish history. About whom does he write? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Why Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai? Because Yochanan ben Zakkai reestablished Judaism after a disaster. And the thinking was that the, the Nazi period represents the Churban Habayit, the destruction of the Temple. And yet, there was a, a, a renaissance of Judaism after the Churban Habayit. So too there could be a renaissance of Judaism even during and after the Nazi phase. Not realizing it'll be a genocide, thinking it's just going to be a you know, comparatively lesser persecution, so we can we can revive ourselves. Then he writes about Rabbi Akiva, a man who had faith in the ability to overcome the enemy. Then it writes an essay about Rabbi Shimon ben, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel II, who re-established rabbinic life after the Bar Kokhba rebellion. So again. The, the message is that despite destruction, there is the possibility of, of the renewed flourishing of Judaism. And lastly, he writes about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the redactor of the Mishnah. In 1936, he publishes sermons for the High Holidays, in which he encourages people to once again commune with God in sincere prayer. Not in phony prayer, just a, you know, liturgy for the sake of reading the liturgy, but rather real prayer where you connect to a personal God. Um, and he looked forward to publishing a volume on uh, the meaning of prayer. So, he's looking, but at the same time as he's doing all this nice uh, spiritual work on behalf of a beleaguered German Jewry, he knows full well he's got to get out. So, he's looking around the world, what are his options outside of Central and Eastern Europe? for an academic position with, for a man of his talents. Well, I ask you, what, what institutions exist in 1938 in the world of Judaism? JTS, what else? Hebrew Union College, what else? Hebrew University, what else? Jews College, what else? YU. That wasn't on his radar. Okay, so, YU. But the big one... The one that is most prominent is Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, 3080 Broadway. So he does a smart thing. He sends one of the precious copies of his German dissertation on the prophets to Louis Finkelstein. Who is Louis Finkelstein? So Louis Finkelstein at that time is a professor at JTS. He's not yet the chancellor. or not, Actually, he becomes chancellor in 1951. becomes president in 1940. At that time, Cyrus Adler is the president of JTS. But Cyrus Adler is sort of a befuddled older man at that point, not really involved. Finkelstein's really running the joint. So it's a smart move. Send Finkelstein your work, hope that he likes it, and hope that he'll hire you eventually. And before it's too late, before the Nazis kill, uh, kill him. So he does that. And Buber goes off to Palestine. Heschel writes to him almost every week, trying to sustain the relationship. Now, by the way, theologically, Heschel and Buber, uh, Heschel and Buber were poles apart. Buber believes in sim- symbolism. If there's any validity into, in, in ritual, it's as a, as a symbolic measure. And is there a God? Sort of. Whereas Heschel believes in mitzvot, what are mitzvot? Commandments. And commandments implies an actual God, a deity that you could worship, a personal God. So they're worlds apart theologically, but they were close professionally and personally. So, how, how do I do yeah. communicate with language like this? Communicate with 
<coughs> German. English. We'll see. He has to. Uh, he, he he learns English uh, very quickly when he gets to America. When he goes to Cincinnati. So, in 1938, the world is a ch- is changing. Last week we spent our session discussing Herschel Greenspan. So, what's the connection between Herschel and Heschel? Well, they never met, but there's an intimate connection. The deportation of Polish national Jews out of Germany on the night of October 28, 1938. Herschel's family was part of that roundup that was deported to Sebastian on the Polish-German border as part of the 20,000 Jews who were kicked out in one night. Heschel was arrested by the Gestapo in Frankfurt, sent on the trains with Herschel's family, and dumped in Poland. But unlike Herschel's family, who uh, uh, the Greenspans, who were stuck in a refugee camp for a few months before they could move on, Heschel moved out of the refugee camp within a week and was in Warsaw with his mother and his uh, sisters. Uh, because they were able to... Uh, since he was a Polish national who had family and country and there was enough resources to get him a train ticket to Warsaw, there was nothing stopping him from going to Warsaw. Um, so, what does he do in Warsaw? Well, he doesn't really want to be there, but if he's there, let's make the most of it. So he joins the, um, the Warsaw Institute for Jewish Science which is like a theological seminary, but without rabbinical students. It's like a, a graduate school, a graduate center for Judaic studies, um, where there were some prominent people. Rabbi Shore was the, was the head, and one of the, 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 the chief Talmudists there was Abraham Weiss, who went on to have an illustrious career at YU as the professor of Talmud. So he's doing his academic work in Warsaw, but realizing that it's time to get out. He's got to leave. Poland is doomed. There's no future in Poland. He gets lucky. Julian Morgenstern, the head of Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, has an idea. He knows that doom is, uh, is about to hit European Jewry. And there are great Jewish scholars, academic scholars of Judaism, who can be rescued from the dying continent of Europe if only we could create positions for them here in Cincinnati and get them American visas. So they create a college in exile where ten professors from, uh, from Europe were brought over to Cincinnati to be adjunct scholars uh, teaching a few courses but basically just getting their lives saved by Hebrew Union College. Heschel is on this list. So he gets the call in July of 1939, or actually in, in, uh, in May of 1939, that he could have a position ready for him as an instructor at Hebrew Union College. Wonderful, but no visa. The Polish quota is very small. America doesn't allow too many people to come from Poland. So it was suggested to him, go to London, and you might be able to get a visa from London. So on July 13th, he arrives, in 1939, he arrives in London. Not, re- not realizing, of course, that six weeks later, Poland would be invaded by the Germans, and that would be the end of anyone trying to get out of Poland. So he, his life is spared, and the timing was just right because of that invitation by Julian Morgenstern. Problem is, even in London, there's no visa. So he's saying with his brother Jacob, Rabbi Jacob Heschel, uh, who was a congregational rabbi in, uh, in London, and it's sort of killing time, trying to do some scholarly work. He tries to establish the equivalent of a lairhouse for British Jewry in London. He's always thinking, what can I do for Am Yisrael? What can I do to advance the spiritual and scholastic efforts of the Jewish people? Uh, but he doesn't, you know, doesn't want to be there long term. It was suggested he should go to Dublin to get a visa. Fortunately, he didn't have to go to Dublin. The, the, the visa was delivered to London. He picked it up in March of, uh, of 1940. And by March 21st, he was uh, in New York. Took the boat to New York. He's met at the dock by his cousin, the, uh, by his uh, cousin the Bayana Rebbe, and he ends up staying with his brother-in-law, the Kapitchinser Rebbe, and his sis- older sister Sarah. You said the Bayana Rebbe. The Bayana Rebbe was his cousin. Yeah. So they already. So members of the family were leaving as early as World War One. Some Kapitchinsers went to Vienna, and they got caught up in the Anschluss, and some of them didn't survive the war. Others went to London. Others went to New York. So he had family in a lot of different places, which was good because he relied upon them at various times. Okay. April of 1940, he takes the, tr- the overnight train to Cincinnati. 
goes to Cincinnati. What's he going to do in Cincinnati? Well, it's a class of culture, a clash of cultures. I, I've told this story uh, once before uh, in, this, in these uh, lectures, but I'll tell it again. Cincinnati was not a religious place, the Hebrew Union College. It was a den of atheism, to be honest. And religious observance was uh, non-existent. My professor at, at Bernard Revel Graduate School, uh, Elisheva Karlbach, she once told me that uh, she had to go to, to Hebrew Union College for a day to use the library, that they had certain books that she would need to research and they could only be found there, so she took the train off to, to Cincinnati. This was in the late 1980s. And uh, she went to the library, and here she was a very religious woman with a tichel on her head and a long skirt, and, and the... the um, the clerk at the, the library the, the, behind the desk said, by the way, there is no kosher food here. Not an ounce of kosher food here. Now, it, I, I don't know if, if the guy meant it like, in a nasty way or just a, a practical way, like you're going to go hungry. But uh, she took it to be in an unpleasant uh, tone. And as she was leaving a few hours later, after she had finished with her research, she said, oh, by the way, I found a bag of pretzels in the vending machine that had an OU on it. <laughs> I tell this story just to show you that for a religious Jew like Heschel, even though he's a clean-shaven professor, he's still a chassid at heart and a pious observer of the commandments, it's not going to be easy for him, to, uh, for him to live in this environment. He's living in the dormitory. He's a 33-year-old bachelor, surrounded by 18, 19, 20-year-old Vildechaya kids from assimilated Jewish homes in the Midwest who don't really know much about Judaism, and he's supposed to teach them. Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kashrus, the whole business. Okay, so he ate in the cafeteria, he became a vegan, or a vegetarian. Uh, so his diet was limited, and when he wanted meat, he would have a hard salami that he got from the deli from a few, few miles over in the Jewish part of town, which contributed to his heart disease and would, it killed him later. Um, there was religious life in Cincinnati, in the Orthodox and traditional conservative uh, uh, environments. So he would, he would make uh, friends and acquaintances with Eliezer Silver, and Rabbi Feinberg, who was the mm, sort of conservadox rabbi uh, not too far from HUC. He had, he, so he had with whom to uh, commiserate religiously, but not on campus. On campus, he was hazed by the, the uh, unpleasant, very not nice students of the, of the college. But they saved his life. And he was eternally grateful to Julian Morgenstern for that, uh, for that one fact the all-important fact of having been given a job and a visa to save his life. He teaches courses. As a, as a pedagogue, he's, he's not good. He's not a good teacher in the classroom. Most people didn't like his, his lectures. He had a small following of a few people who thought that he was the be-all and end-all, like a Hasidic Rebbe on campus, and they were looking for a greater spirituality. But for your average student there, he was not their cup of tea. Not their cup of tea. He, he, he was a smart guy. I mean, he, he, he made it his business to learn English as fast, as quickly as possible because he wanted to write books in English. Um, it was his goal to be a prolific and a, a public author for a, a, an audience beyond just the Jewish audience. And he would be tremendously successful at that, as we'll see soon. Okay. Uh, he survives uh, the next five years of, uh, of the reform environment. And he realizes in 1945 that he needs a new professional home. But where could he go? So the two options are YU and JTS. He's in talks with, uh, with the dean at, y, at Yeshiva College to offer some summer courses in the summer of 1945 to test the waters to see if uh, it'll go over well. Uh, they were interested in hiring him. They were very interested in hiring him. And he, had he gone there... It would have worked out just fine, I believe. He would have been a professor of philosophy. Maybe we would have taught in the Reitz program as well. He could have been, a, whether a Rosh Hashiva or a, or a professor in the graduate school, either one was, would have, been, would have suited, suited him just fine. In the end, it didn't work out because Finkelstein wanted him for JTS. Why did Finkelstein want Heschel? So two reasons. Well, two faculty members who supported him being hired. One was Louis Ginsburg. Louis Ginsburg, who was the, uh, the greatest Talmudist of the first half of the 20th century, was at that point 73 years old, 72 years old, veering towards retirement, and sort of uh, losing his influence uh, in, the, in, the end of, in the twilight of his career. But he still had the ear of Finkelstein, 
the young president of the school. And Ginsburg's wife, Adele, said to her husband, Shatzi, we need to hire Heschel. Why? Because Kaplan is ruining all, ruining all the students. Now, who's Kaplan? Mordechai Kaplan. How is he ruining all the students? Because he's an apikyrus. And he's teaching them all sorts of heresy, of Reconstructionist Judaism, uh, not, not believing in a, in a personal God, and, a, and forsaking aspects of the halakha. So we, what, what does Ginsburg believe? That we need to have a traditionalist, not just a traditional uh, person in practice, but a traditional believer, and a chassid at that, to counter the influence of Kaplan. Which other faculty member wants Heschel hired? Kaplan! Why? Because Kaplan is now 60 some odd years old and is looking to back off from his responsibilities at the Teachers Institute, which he had been the principal of since 1909, since Schechter hired him in the Stone Age. And he wanted to focus on Reconstructionist movement and the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, SAJ, on, on West 86th Street. So for totally polar opposite reasons, faculty members told Finkelstein, yeah, hire this guy Heschel, he's good, he's good. So Heschel got a job as an instructor of Bible. JTS wanted so-called the from guy to come in and to run the place? Not to run the place, to be a, to be a professor. Now, truth of the matter is, almost all of the hires of the, almost all of the hires of the early Finkelstein era were of very religious people. And significant part because uh, Saul Lieberman had a hand in who got hired, and Lieberman was a very traditional man, uh, the best Talmudist of the, tw- of the second half of the 20th century, um, and so they weren't going to bring on board those people with grossly heterodox viewpoints or who were not personally observant. It wasn't going to happen in the 40s and early 50s. So most of the hires were traditional people, very traditional people. How did they differ from orthodox, an orthodox institution? That's a long discussion. The bottom line is it wasn't the yeshiva. It wasn't the yeshiva. It was a theological seminary. It was an academic institution that incidentally produced rabbis to, for, for pulpit congregations. But basically it was for the highest level scholars of Judaica in the world to be able to function and have some students and produce their work. Uh, in what sense was it not orthodox Yes, uh, some, of the, some of the people who taught there were not uh, uh, believers in the, the 13 principles of Maimonides as, fundament- as uh, defined by a fundamentalist position. Uh, and there were certain professors who, aside from Kaplan, who were in their thinking, uh, you know, believers in documentary hypothesis or just non-orthodox viewpoints. But that wasn't the focus of their, uh, of their uh, teaching. Their teaching was just the scholarship, not... Uh, you know their own private theology. So, was Mordechai Kaplan the rabbi of the Jewish Center? Yes, he was from 1917 to 1921. Which is an Orthodox. Despite him. Yeah. Despite him. Okay. Despite so. Well, he also was involved in Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the with a position in place, he's now teaching in New York. He's ready to get married. He meets Sylvia Strauss, and they get married in 1946. He was 39, she was 33. She was a concert pianist who had one career concert. It wasn't reviewed well, then she stopped playing. And she taught. She was a piano instructor for the rest of, uh, of her life. Um, but she was not religiously knowledgeable. She didn't come from a traditional background. And so it was something of a, an odd mix religiously, but it worked. And she increased her level of observance to fit the culture of faculty life at the seminary. Okay. Heschel was a prolific writer, as I said. And his, his books in the English language included The Earth is the Lord's, 1950, Man is Not Alone, 1951, its companion volume, Man's Quest for God, in 1954, The Sabbath in 1951, God in Search of Man in 1955, The Prophets in 1961, and so on and so forth. The big ones were uh, Man is Not Alone and Man's Quest for God, which were uh, God in Search of Man, which were the philosophy of Judaism. Heschel's philosophy of Judaism boiled down to about 700 pages. And they, they sold very, very well for audiences beyond the Jewish world and gave him celebrity, and which was one of the reasons why 
other professors at the seminary were jealous of him. Louis Finkelstein wanted to be the Gadolador for America. And he was on the cover of Time magazine in 1951. But that was a, sort of a 15, minute, 15 seconds of fame. Bottom line is Abraham Joshua Heschel out far outdid him. Many more Americans recognized the face of Heschel, the guy with the beard and the big yarmulke, as the face of Judaism than they recognized anybody else from these various seminary faculties. Yeah. How much of what he So some of it was, especially his later books on the Kutzker, on the Kutzker Rebbe, which was published posthumously in 1973, but all of the books had elements of Hasidism in them. Um, especially, well, the Sabbath had a, had a nice amount of Hasidism in it, and the Sabbath sold well even beyond Jewish circles, because even the Christians have a Sabbath. And conceptually it's the same, whether it's on Saturday or it's on Sunday. Um, but yes, his, his, his family background plays an important role in the, the kind of book that he's writing. He's not writing dry scholarship, which is exactly why he doesn't, he sells, number one, and he doesn't get the, the respect of the dry scholars with whom he works at, at 3080 Broadway. They want you to put out you know, critical editions of some obscure midrashic text, and that makes you a Gohan Oilem. Whereas he's writing English-language books for the masses that are 500 pages of what they would argue was fluff, but what he would argue was deep theology. Okay. Is he promoting conservative movement in his writings? No, not at all. Not at all. Which we'll get to soon enough, his relationship to the various denominations. So Tobin and Shemayim I'm going to spend a few minutes on because it's my favorite book of all time. Of all time. You heard it here. So, uh, in 1953, Heschel gives uh, like shuttle diplomacy. He speaks at the RA convention, the Rabbinical Assembly, and the CCR convention, the Central Conference of American Rabbis. So the conservative and reformed rabbis get to hear him talk. At this point, he's been in, in uh, America 13 years. He's been in New York for eight years. He's a professor at the seminary. He's published a few good books. He's on the rise. He's 46 years old. He has what to say, and people take him seriously. And what does he tell these rabbis? He basically says, you have to be believers. And Judaism in America today is a disgrace. Why? You go to the synagogue, and what happens there? The public is passive, the clergy pray at the top, on the, on the stage, and even the clergy probably doesn't even believe in God. Many of the rabbis were either atheists or pantheists or agnostics or uncertain of what they, where they stood. He said firmly, we have to get rid of this 20th century bogus theology and return to a traditional belief in a personal deity who can hear prayer and can, who can accept and respond to prayer because you can't pray to an abstract notion, to just an idea. That's what the Reconstructionists would have you believe, that you can and should pray to uh, abstract notions. He said, that's bunk. You have to be a real believer. And he said that to both the, the conservative and to the reform. But especially to the reform, he said, you have to have a halakha. You have to have something to hold on to. It can't just be that there's customs and ceremonies. He mocked the idea of customs and ceremonies, which was a term used in the Talmud Torahs in the Hebrew schools of mid-century America. Customs and ceremonies, no. Mitzvot, <coughs> binding laws that you'll adhere to to a greater or lesser extent. Granted, he wasn't assuming that reform are going to become pious uh, you know, Hasidim, but you have to think that it's a commandment, not just a ceremony. Okay, that was his spiel to the various denominations. He was never a denominational Jew. But he also had some criticism of the Orthodox. He didn't like religious behaviorism, and he didn't like Rabbi Soloveitchik's Isha Halacha. He thought that that was off-base, that that's not the, the, the mahout of Judaism, that's not the essence of Judaism, the Isha Halacha. No, that's just uh, too, you know, uh, too much of a compartmentalizing of Judaism. He wants the Kavanah, he wants the Halacha, he wants the spirit, he wants everything. Now, is he going to get it from people? Maybe. You know, a few followers of his will become uh, especially devout. Uh, but for the most part, it doesn't really uh, strike a chord with too many people. Okay. In that crowd, yes. Okay. Um, we're, uh, we're running out of time. We've got a lot more to cover here. So, let's see what else here. Uh, his relationship to, um, to Israel. He made his first visit to Israel in 1957, made another visit in 1963, and made another one uh, in the late 60s. Why, uh, what, 
what what is his attitude towards Zionism, towards Hebrew, towards the uh, the cult, the culture of Israel? Well, Heschel was a fluent speaker of modern Hebrew as early as his days in Warsaw and Vilna, and he believed in cultural Zionism, Achad Ha'am style Zionism, that there should be a base of operations for Judaism, for Yiddishkeit, for modern Hebrew culture out of Eretz Yisrael. Torah, but Torah in the broader sense of Torah, and that would improve the diaspora. So he's a typical diaspora cultural Zionist, who himself stays in the diaspora. But after the establishment of the state of Israel, uh, what is his attitude towards the state? Well, he regards it as a miraculous uh, development in the history of Am Yisrael, but he's by no means a militarist or a right-winger. He believes that Israel needs to be a beacon of, uh, of freedom and a, a pursuer of peace. An Pers- echo of eternity. An echo of eternity. That's true. As his title says. Yeah. So, he, uh, he, he does not, he does not um, toe the party line when it comes to absolute, you know, unequivocal support for Israel without criticism. He goes to Israel and says, Israel needs to be a more spiritual place. He doesn't like the secularism that he finds among the, the, Chilonim, the, the crowd of Chilonim. But he believes that it's possible to reform Israeli culture in a more spiritual direction, which is the same agenda he has for the diaspora, that they need to have tr- true spirituality. So he's not uh, advocating sort of an orthodox monopoly over, over uh, Jewish life in Israel. That's far from his agenda. But he wants a more religious Israel. Okay. Let's now turn to um, Torah Min HaShemayim. Quick question. Yeah. Are there any scholars? Yes. Okay. Torah Min HaShemayim. Torah Min HaShemayim, which was translated in 19, uh, 2004 by Gordon Tucker and under the title Heavenly Torah as Refracted Through the Generations, was a three-volume work. The first volume came out in 1962. The second volume came out in 1965. The third volume came out in 1990, long after he died. Um... What is this? Well, we know that there, are, there is machloket all throughout Mishnah, Gemara, on matters of halacha. But your average student in yeshiva is basically unaware of the fact that there is machloket, there is disagreement in matters of theology, in matters of basic beliefs, and in the Agadah, in the homiletic facets of Torah. And so what Heschel did was to say, just as you have different schools of thought in the law, so too you have different schools of thought theologically. And he breaks it down roughly into the camps of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmael. That Rabbi Yishmael is the uh, restrained exegete, the one who will interpret the Torah in in a limited fashion, try to stick to roughly the plain meaning of the text, whereas Rabbi Akiva is the fanciful interpreter of the text, who will find uh, piles and piles of meaning in every last jot and tittle of the text. But it's not just in the nature of interpretation where they disagree. They also disagree about how the, law was re- how the book was revealed. Whereas Rabbi Akiva says that God dictated to Moses on Mount Sinai the, the whole Torah from the Bays of Voracious to the Lamed of Le'enei Kol Yisrael. Basically the A to Z of the Bible was dictated by God to Moses on Mount Sinai in 40 days. That's the, the maximalist Akivan position. The minimalist Yishmaelian position is that the Torah was given by God to Moses over a 40 year span and written down over time piecemeal, and doesn't necessarily represent direct dictation of the divine voice, but rather is a rough approximation of the divine voice. Now, okay, so if if you were to try to espouse the Ishmaelian point of view in an orthodox institution today, good luck to you. All right? They'll throw you out. And one of Heschel's uh, agendas, or maybe his primary agenda in writing this book, was to say that you can be uh, less maximalist in your own personal uh, beliefs about revelation and about miracles and about what happened in the past. You can be a, a, even a, a minimalist and still be within the accepted rabbinic tradition. That you're not a heretic, you're not an apikoros, if you believe along the lines of Rabbi Yishmael and the minimalist school. And in the 20th century... 
among those people who had a Western education and who were familiar with biblical criticism and with the advanced academic Jewish studies, it's not an easy thing to subscribe to the Akivan maximalist position. Uh, it, it, the, 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 the maximalist position and what you learn at the Hochschule or what you learn at the seminary or what even you learn at Bernard Revel Graduate School Yeshiva University are not necessarily one and the same. So therefore, there needs to be a defense of the religious legitimacy of those who hold a, a, a more moderate position. Okay. Now I suggest, and it's expensive, it costs like 60 bucks, but I suggest you all go out home when, when the class is over, go to Amazon and buy Heavenly Torah. It's well worth it. You're not going to read the book from cover to cover. You won't. Even I never have. I read the whole Hebrew cover to cover. It took me forever. But I, with the English, you'll read chapters, snippets, the chapters that appeal to you. And I am telling you, It'll be the best purchase of a Jewish book you've had in a long time. Okay? That was Heavenly Torah, Torah Shamayim. Now, the problem with Torah Shamayim was that it didn't get the kind of acclaim that Heschel thought it would. Here he thought he finally wrote a real safer. So my colleagues, you know, the gadolim of academia, will finally recognize that I am a scholar too. I'm not just this uh, uh, philosopher who writes fluff for the Amcha. So he sent the copy to, to Saul Lieberman. And Saul Lieberman responded with a note saying, oh, it's a nice book of quotations, but uh, the, the Semitic uh, scholar Wilhelm Bacher in the 1890s already noted that there's a distinction between Akiva and Yishmael, so it's kind of a superfluous work. Now that was a dagger in the chest of Abraham Joshua Heschel. So Heschel sent his, his sidekick, or his underling, Wolf Kalman, to return the note uh, back to Lieberman, who then realized that he had made a faux pas and wrote a nicer note afterwards. But that was the Lieberman-Heschel relationship uh, by the 1960s. It had soured. Even though in the beginning they, were, they got along reasonably well, they lived in the same building, 425 Riverside Drive. So they saw each other all the time at work and at home, but uh, they didn't get along too well. Another anecdote about uh, Heschel and Lieberman, uh, the, the, the shul, the seminary, so Lieberman was the rabbi of the, of the, of the shul, and it gave out all the aliyahs and all the kibudim, and they used to give Heschel shishi. Why? Because Hasidim think that shishi is important. And Lieberman said, yeah, but only Hasidim think it's important, so we'll give it to him. Um, then another story was, they had nine for a, for a minion one afternoon. And someone said to Lieberman, Heschel's upstairs in his office, I'll go get him, we'll get, we'll get ten. To which Lieberman dismissively retorted, Heschel's interested in prayer, I want a daven mincha. <laughs> so you, you see that uh, Breigis on the faculty, not always so, so, so nice. All right. Um, running out of time. Uh, Civil rights? Civil rights. Okay, there are three areas of Heschel's activity that went beyond just the Jewish world. And they are, in no particular order, interfaith relations, civil rights, and the anti-Vietnam War movement. The fourth aspect of communal involvement was actually Soviet Jewry. Heschel was, was one of the early leaders of Soviet Jewry. To be honest, he didn't play much of an important role in that movement, but he, he was aware of the significance of the plight of Soviet Jewry before it was cool. Before everybody else was joining the bandwagon, he was saying, we need to fight for our brethren, that there's a spiritual holocaust, just as there was a, a physical holocaust. Okay, now, interfaith relations. With the death of Pius XII in 1958 and the ascendancy to the, to the papacy of John XXIII, there was the possibility for improving relations between the Catholic Church, uh, the Holy See, and other religions around the world, especially and in including Judaism. And so uh, John XXIII appointed Augustine Cardinal Bea uh, to be the point man on relations with the Jews. And there was the convening of a second Vatican Council in 1962, which was supposed to adopt some kind of revised position of the church towards other denominations, including Judaism. From the Jewish point of view, what are the sort of the checklist, the wish list of things that we would hope in the early 60s that the Catholic Church would change about its uh, official dogmas? So, deicide should be eliminated as a doctrine. What else? Uh, prayer about uh, uh, the, per the perniciousness of the Jews and for that matter the, the, the expressed desire for conversion perfidious Jews, perfidious Jews uh, and a, a condemnation of anti-Semitism and maybe, just maybe, but it's sort of a dream 
recognition of the state of Israel. Recognition of the state. So the truth of the matter is that by 1965, when the Second Vatican Council Nostra Aetate is, is, is adopted, almost all those things will be included except for recognition of the state of Israel. That doesn't happen until 1993. It took a long time for that to happen. Uh, but there's serious and intense negotiations that happen between 61 and 65 before the, the progressive document is approved by the church. And who's involved in these negotiations? So the American Jewish Committee, led by Mark, Rabbi Mark Tannenbaum, who is the Director of Interfaith Relations, uh, puts together an all-star cast of characters that included Heschel and Rabbi Soloveitchik. Rabbi Soloveitchik would drop out of the picture by 1964 and then adopt the position that, no, we shouldn't talk to other denominations. But he was involved for two years uh, in, the, in the nitty-gritty. Yes. Yes, he, that, that is definitely the case, and Heschel and, and Rabbi Soloveitchik were in, in, in communication the whole time. Okay, now Heschel's biggest uh, achievement was when he got a private audience with the Pope in September of 1964, when it looked like the conservative elements within the church were going to win out, and that a progressive document being nice to the Jews was not going to happen. And in desperation, they arranged a, a personal audience. The audience did not go well. Uh, the official record that was released to the public said that Heschel acquitted himself okay, uh, reasonably well. But the private... This is with Pope Paul. With, po with Pope Paul VI. John the Twenty Third died in 1963, and there was concern that his uh, approach towards relations with the Jews would not be sustained by his predecessor. And Paul VI was not as a, a, a positive a character when it came to Jews as was John the Twenty Third. Okay, when he went to to Palestine in 1964, the Pope, he went to Palestine. He did not go to Israel. He spent a, a total of, uh, I think, four hours in the state of Israel, and the rest of it was in East Jerusalem on the West Bank, in, Be in Beit Lechem, and only passed through the state of Israel very briefly on his way out of the country. So, he, so Paul meets with, with Heschel. What does Heschel want from him? He says, listen, uh, listen, Your, Your Holiness, if you, if you, if you don't adopt a, 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 a policy paper that uh, tackles the issues of... Um, of conversion and getting rid of the expressed desire for conversion, it's going to be bad for public relations. And here, the other Jew in the room is saying, "Oh my God, what is Heschel doing? He's talking to the Pope about public relations. The the Church is a is a serious theological institution. It has it has its own uh, legitimate uh, beliefs. You can't tell them that they that they that they shouldn't want to convert the Jews." Uh, proselytism and missionizing is a, is a standard part of religious life in many, in many religions. You can't take that away from them if they don't want to drop it. What he should have spoken about was the deicide issue and condemnation of anti-Semitism, which he didn't, so he dropped the ball. And how do you know that Heschel dropped the ball? Because on his way out, Heschel said uh, he volunteered his services to the Vatican to be a, a, an expert on Jewish affairs, to which Paul responded, oh, we already have Rabbi Zoli for that. Oh, now to mention Rabbi Zoli is like throwing a four-letter word right back in Heschel's face, because Rabbi Zoli was the Meshuma, the apostate chief rabbi of Rome, who at that point was already dead for, for eight years. So I don't know. So the fact that Zoli's name was mentioned was just a, a shtach for the sake of giving a shtach. It wasn't like a serious comment. Uh, it didn't go well. But the bottom line is interfaith relations improved, and even Heschel was invited back for a Vatic, uh, an, an audience with the Pope in 1971, a year before he died. Okay, enough with, with, with the Vatican. Civil rights. Heschel was a firm believer in civil rights from the moment he got to America. He didn't like the way that the black waitstaff in the dining room at HUC, a southern city, Cincinnati, were treated by the students. Okay? The, the students who came from Midwestern and Southern homes were accustomed to the Jim Crow laws and basically were mean to the black help. And Heschel befriended the, the head waiter in the dining hall and was his friend for the rest of his life. He believed that uh, discrimination on the basis of race is the, one of the biggest sins possible. And especially after the Holocaust, he tried to use the Holocaust as uh, uh, an example of what happens when you allow bigotry to fester. And so he makes an acquaintance of Martin Luther King Jr. He participates in the Selma to Montgomery March, March of 1965. And in the famous picture has Heschel in the front row. He insisted upon being in the front row, and not because of uh, being vainglorious. 
not for his own pride and his own ego. Everybody has an ego, but that wasn't why he wanted it. He wanted to look like a big Rebbe at the front line that a Jew, a big Rebbe, a traditional Jew, is fighting for, for, for rights for blacks. And so he grew out his beard extra long for the occasion and wore a big yarmulke for the occasion that he should play the part. Now, having played the part, he went to the airport in Montgomery. He was hungry. He hadn't eaten in a day and a half. And he wants to have some food. So he goes to the counter as the, as the, as the cafeteria is closing and uh, says, can I have some food? And the lady realizes that he's some white interloper from the north, you know, a Jew interloper. She says, no food for you. No food here. And see, she says to him, but you know, my mama told me there was a Santa Claus and I never believed her until uh, 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 now I see you. It's true. There is Santa Claus. She was making fun of him. <laughs> he looked like Santa Claus. So he says, well, maybe you have some eggs in the refrigerator. She said, yeah. Maybe you have some water in the sink. Yeah. Maybe you could turn the faucet on and put the eggs in and put it on the flame and you'll boil me some eggs and I'll eat the boiled eggs and that'll be my dinner. And she says, and why should I do that for you? And he said, because I, I did you a big favor. I confirmed your belief in Santa Claus. <laughs> all right, so he, he knew how to handle himself in all these situations, even dealing with racists. Okay, uh, he, his last uh, uh, ecumenical involvement was the anti-war, the anti-war movement. In this regard, Heschel was the most tr- visibly traditional Jew in the anti-war movement. And on this point his colleagues didn't always agree with him. Some of his own chief disciples disagreed with him and were Republicans and supported Nixon, whereas he was a uh, supporter of McGovern. In 1968, uh, Heschel participated in the anti-war demonstration at Arlington Arlington National Cemetery. And it was a famous uh, event from a Jewish point of view because in the front row together with Heschel was another rabbi. Who was it? Maurice Eisendrath, who was a reform rabbi, prominent reform rabbi, who held a Torah. They brought a Torah into a Goyesha cemetery. And all the traditionalists were attacking him. How could you bring a Torah into a Goyesha cemetery? And so he had to give a whole pilpul about why it was mutter, it was not against the halacha to bring the Torah into the cemetery. That number one, the Torah wasn't checked, so it was kosher, maybe it was puzzle. Number two, it wasn't in Daladamas of a grave. Number three, there's no din, you can't bring a Torah into a cemetery, only that you can't read a Torah, learn Torah in the cemetery. He had all pilpulistic explanation for why it was allowed. Asked privately later on, you know, why, why'd you do it? He says, it wasn't me. Eisendrath did it, but well, now that it was done, I'm not going to say that he was wrong. I tried to you know, cover myself by giving explanations. Okay. He blessed draft dodgers, and he was very close with those who were even violently protesting the war, but Heschel himself never countenanced violence. He believed in non-violent protest of the war in Vietnam. Why did he oppose the war so much? He felt, number one, that militarism in general is uh, distasteful. Not that he was a complete pacifist, but that he didn't like the, the spread of militarist fervor. But secondly, he felt that the corrupt regime in South Vietnam wasn't worth being supported. It wasn't worth American support. And that America was destroying the ecology of Vietnam. That the, the napalm and all the bombings, just the, the, the grotesque destruction of the countryside was unwarranted. That was his point of view. He was criticized for his anti-war sentiments by Jews who felt that this was going to compromise American support for Israel. But how could you, on the one hand, be against American militarism in Southeast Asia, and on the other hand, support robust American military support for the Goliath of the, of the Middle East, the state of Israel? Now, especially after this Six-Day War, Israel is no longer the David, they're the Goliath. So this was a problem. How does Heschel balance his support for Medinat Israel with his uh, attitude about Vietnam? In his own mind, he was able to reconcile it, but for others, this was an inconsistency. Okay, last point, we'll discuss his death. Heschel died, uh, Heschel had a heart attack in 1969, from which he barely recovered. He went on to have three more years of teaching and developing disciples, uh, but he dies in uh, December, December 23rd, 1972. When he died on Shabbos, um, he had a copy of Newsweek on his night table next to him. Sylvia brilliantly replaced the Newsweek magazine with a copy of an of a obscure Hasidic work 
and uh, a book, The Best and the Brightest, about Nixon's cabinet, to make it seem as though he died while being immersed in his two worlds, his world of of Hasidism and Judaica, and his world of public advocacy, uh, you know, American moral advocacy. Uh, But in fact, it was just a magazine, and it was an arrangement, and the New York Times had a picture of the books on the night table. Okay, who ran the funeral? So here he's a professor at Jewish Theological Seminary. You'd figure, where's the, where's the Leviah going to be? In the, in, the cemetery, in the seminary synagogue. No, can't be. Why? Because the Kapichnitzer Hasidim are burying him. They're the Chevra Kadisha, and he's being buried in their plot. So they're not going to go to JTS. Then the other thought was, Judah Natick was the rabbi at Park Avenue Synagogue, and he was a close friend of Heschel, and there's a big 2,000-seat uh, synagogue, if you've ever been to Park Avenue on 87th Street, it's a big shul. Uh, no, they won't go into a conservative shul. So they had it in a non-denominational funeral chapel on West 79th Street, and they go off to, to Beth David uh, in Elmont for the burial. Not in, no, Campbell's is on, e, on East 81st in Madison. I've done a funeral in Campbell's. Uh, 70, I, I'm not sure what's there now. This was not Riverside. This is not a Jewish... It was the 79th, not 76th. So they go out to, to Elmont for the burial. And uh, the casket breaks. It was a horrible day. Cold, sleet. Rain, snow, dark, you know, the, the, the mud, they couldn't even shovel. It's a disaster. The, the casket breaks, and Heschel's body is partly exposed. Oh my so nobody wants to jump in and fix it. So who jumps in? Jacob Tashima, his Japanese Christian disciple, who was one of his greatest Talmudim, was a Japanese Christian, Jacob Tashima, uh, jumps in and fixed the casket. One of the Hasidim yells, Get the oral out of there! The oral, the, the, the uncircumcised, okay? Uh, but no, no, but the Kapishnitzer Rebbe said, no, it's okay, Rabbi Yaakov will fix it. You know, Jacob was Rabbi Yaakov. He was a Goya, but he was Rabbi Yaakov because he was a loyal disciple. And uh, then they sit Shiva, and the Hasidim have the minion three times a day, and Susanna wants to say Kaddish, but, you know, it's a Hasidish minion, so where is the woman saying Kaddish? She's in the other room, which didn't go over well with her, and... Uh, I can understand why. Huh? No, that's his daughter. He had one daughter. One daughter. So, uh, and she's a pr- pr- prestigious professor of uh, Judaic studies at Dartmouth. So, uh, what's the legacy of Heschel? Well, there are Heschel schools today, but that has nothing to do with his legacy, to be honest. Those are non-denominational schools that have to be not such impressive Judaic curriculum. Uh, I mean, they're good schools, they're good pri- private education, but that's not the legacy of Abraham Joshua Heschel. His legacy are his written works that are still read today by many people, Jew and non-Jew alike, who find spiritual comfort in them and who come closer to a traditional theology by means of those books, and plus those immediate disciples who went on to have public, edu- public careers in, in Jewish positions, whether in the, the, the congregational clergy or in academia, or as executive professionals in Jewish organizations, who saw Heschel as a modern-day Rebbe. He was a Hasidic Rebbe for people who don't live the life of Hasidism, for American Jews. Did he have the impact that Kaplan had, who was his theological opponent, Probably not, because after all, there's a Reconstructionist movement and conservative Judaism went in a Kaplanian direction. You don't have Heschelian Judaism as a mass denomination. You don't have that. But I think the people who read Heschel and who absorbed the message are better Jews today than the ones who read Kaplan's works like Judaism as a Civilization and any of the other Narishkeiten that were produced by the far left. That Heschel gave us a literary legacy that's worth reading even to this day. So go home and buy Heavenly Torah. Okay.